It's been a few weeks ago, but when we left off from our study of Ephesians, we had sort of a reintroduction to chapters four through six, because this is the point in the letter, you know, in the first three chapters, Paul is primarily focused on doctrinal issues. And then in the last three chapters, it is decidedly more practical. And so this is that transition point. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. When you go hear a you know, full-sized orchestra perform You know, you've got the stringed instruments and the woodwinds and the brass and the percussion. Before the symphony begins, the performers have to get in tune with one another. You you could well imagine the chaos that would ensue if every performer tried to retune their instrument based on their own preferences or even tried to just match the sound of the person who happened to be on their left or right, just one instrument being a little bit off would throw the entire orchestra in disarray. So instead of trying to tune all the instruments individually, instead of each performer tuning to what their own idea of right is, the entire orchestra falls silent as one instrument, the oboe, plays the perfect A note. The oboe is kind of a, a big clarinet. If you're uh, not, not familiar with one, it looks pretty complicated. But my understanding is the oboe is not something that by itself is easily tuned. Since you have to almost dismantle it in order to change the location of the reed, the oboe player can't really tune their instrument quickly to another standard. And that's why the oboe becomes essentially the unchanging standard. It might serve as a suitable illustration for unity within the church, within the body of Christ. The members of the Lord's church each have received a unique calling. We stressed last time that Paul in verse 1 urges believers to walk worthy of their calling. And through the rest of the letter, we'll see the way that that impacts individuals specifically. He'll mention husbands and wives and servants and masters and children and parents. He's already talked about Jews and Gentiles. So there is a unique calling for each of our lives. However, in verse 1, if you're reading along in the King James Version, you can see he uses the word ye twice. That's the plural of you. And in the South, this is easy. It's y'all. So Paul's saying, I implore each of you that each of you would walk worthy of the calling which each of you have been called. This is a 
church letter by the Apostle Paul. It's not a personal one. He wouldn't have worded it this way if he had just been writing to, say, Timothy or Philemon. He's writing to a collection of people who are located within an assembly, specifically here, the Lord's Church at Ephesus. If you think back to the end of chapter 3, it'll be even more evident that that's Paul's intent. He recorded his own prayer for the church at the end of chapter 3, that they would know the power and the love of God at work in their assembly. And he finished that by saying, unto him, that is unto God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And it's not like Paul's original letter then had a break that said end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. It, it didn't have that. It just naturally flows directly forward into therefore or because of that. So he's saying because I want the church bringing glory to God, I implore you that each of you would walk worthy to the calling to which each of you have been called. So while there is a sense in which every individual Christian lives out their calling in unique ways as a Jew or a Gentile, a parent, a child, a husband, a wife, a servant, a master. The greater appeal here is for all believers to live out their individual calling within the community of Christ that we know as a church. And for all those varied and and, and multifaceted individuals within that church to know that while each of us has a unique calling, we have to be in unity with one another as we pursue that calling. So much like an orchestra with all the performers tuning their instruments to this unchanging oboe, the members of the church must be in tune with one another by conforming our lives to the unchanging Lord Jesus Christ. He is the the standard. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Paul says at the end of chapter 3, we'll always be bringing glory to God through the church by Christ Jesus. Forever, until the end of the age, until the Lord himself returns. This is the calling of the church. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul, as he calls these individual church members to live as a community in Christ, that he makes an appeal for them to be united. There's an appeal for unity here. He's going to go on later in, the, in this chapter to also appeal for purity. But the first half of Ephesians 4 is all about unity. We need to be on the same page. We, we need to be tuned to the same note. The church is called to live in unity and Paul implores the Lord's churches throughout all ages to live in that community, united for God's glory. But this brings us to another thing I think we must see before we sort of dive into the text because, frankly, this is a... a, Ephesians 4 is a complicated, it's a complex section of Scripture. It's going to be easy for us to miss something if we don't address it now. So let's, let's address it by asking this question. Who is responsible for unity? If church members are to live in unity with one another, who is supposed to make that happen? Some would default to playing, you know, the sovereignty of God trump card here, right? God does it because God does everything. After all, it's God who 
works in us both to will and to do, right? Both to desire and perform his good pleasure. And Paul's been very clear in the first three chapters that all those who Jesus has reconciled to God, he has also reconciled to one another. And so it's because of the work of Christ that Jew and Gentile and servants and masters and all those can live in unity together. So who makes this happen? Some would easily say, well, it's God. God does this. Others, while not denying God's sovereignty, would say, well, this is, this is a matter for human determination and human effort that's required. We're not, we're not talking about salvation after all. That's entirely the work of the Lord. No effort from us, just faith. But unity falls more into that category of good works, which Paul's already talked about. God has before ordained that we should walk in these things. We should strive in this. So who makes this unity happen? Oh, we do. How would Paul answer this question? Which is right? Is the unity a work of God in which he has reconciled believers to each other and placed them in the church? Or is unity a good work for us to do? Embracing our brothers and sisters in Christ as a means of bringing God glory. Well, if we grasp the sense of this chapter correctly, I think Paul's answer is yes. Which is it? It's both of those things. And let me show you why. He's not shy about using this word unity. He's he's got it a couple of times in this chapter. Look at what he says in verse three. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word keep there means to maintain or to guard or to preserve something. However you look at it, for you to keep or preserve or to guard something, it has to exist. And so he says, this is the the unity of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit has created this unity. And so unity is not something that we create. It's something that as, as we go through the first six verses, we'll see God has created. Our calling is simply to keep or to maintain this unity that God has made. But Paul's not done there. We won't get to it this week. Frankly, we're not going to get through all first six verses this week. But when we get down to verse 7, Paul's going to show us how God has... He, he's going to start in verse 7 by showing how God has given specific gifts to individuals in the church in order for the assembly to to grow and to mature spiritually until, look at what he says in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. The idea there is that we arrive at or we reach the destination that we've been going toward. So unity in verse 3 is something that we're given. It's created by God, and we are simply to maintain this unity that God has created. And unity in verse 13 is also something that we strive after. We, we move toward. We, we make an effort to attain unity, not just simply maintain unity. Unity is something we're called to achieve. And we have to keep both of these perspectives at the forefront of our minds as we go through Ephesians 4. God has given us unity and we are called to strive toward unity. In verses 1 through 6, Paul is mostly focused on the first of those two perspectives as he describes the basis of church unity. In these first six verses, we'll see three aspects of of unity which must be true in all the Lord's churches. 
in verse 1, we are united by our common calling. In verses 2 and 3, we are united through our common conduct. And in verses 4 through 6, which we won't get that far this morning, we are united in our common confession. Okay, so we're united in our common calling, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask for an extra portion of your attention for a moment because as, as I explain that verse 1 tells us that we all have the same calling, a common calling, it would be fair for you to accuse me of contradicting myself. You know, Brother Jesus, last time we talked about this, you, you try to mess with us. It's been a few weeks now. But last time, I remember that you tried to stress how Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to address each of us in a unique calling, right? Last time, there was a whole point you made about, you know, Paul's not calling us to a cookie-cutter religion where all of us have to look the same. Each of us have a unique calling, partially because each of us was called out of our own distinctive sins, Right? That's easy enough to prove just by walking through the rest of this text. Glance down at verses 25 through 28. Paul's going to assert, look, some of you were liars, some of you were angry, some of you were thieves. All of that needs to be put away. But each of us also have a unique calling because we have different responsibilities in life. And so when we get into chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In chapter 6, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Servants, right, employees, obey your masters. Masters, employers, treat your servants respectfully. So without a doubt, the apostle stresses the individual nature of our calling. We are not identical. We don't have identical callings, but we do have a common calling we've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ by the work of Jesus Christ to the glory of Jesus Christ in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ our common calling is to be like him in all things whatever those individual things in our lives have to be so let's think about how this works for a moment in Isaiah and in all of Mark's gospel It presents Jesus as the perfect servant of God. He is faithful and obedient in in doing all the things that were set before him to do. He's the perfect example for servants. And yet he's also our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same word Paul's using there as the word meaning master. He's the perfect master, the perfect Lord. He, He guides and directs his servants in love. He calls his servants friends. Jesus is an example for all parents, right? He looked at his disciples and he called them my little children. He urged them to have childlike faith and and trust in him. And yet he is also the righteous standard for all children. He's the perfect son of God. He is obedient to the father. He's always doing the father's will as his priority. Jesus is the perfect example for wives. Is there a better example of submission than the Lord Jesus who, though perfectly equal with the Father, was obedient and submissive to the Father without quarreling? 
Paul will be clear that Jesus is the perfect example for husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's no higher model of self-sacrifice and love than that of Jesus. It's in this way that Paul can say, look, each of you have a, a unique calling, but it is a common calling. And I'm going to go back to our example of an orchestra for a moment. The very fact that every instrument is different is part of what makes the music beautiful. It would be a rare, probably insane person who would enjoy an orchestra that was made up entirely of a hundred bassoons playing the same note. It is that variety that is presented in unity, tuned to the same unchanging standard, which plays a beautiful harmony. And in this way, as a church, as members of a church, we have to ask ourselves, is, is our life conformed to Christ? Whatever the nature of the responsibilities are that the Lord has given you individually, whatever unique place the Lord has put you, conforming to Jesus is your calling. It's our calling. In fact, when, when doing a word study in verse 1, I wasn't surprised to find out that the word vocation and the word calling are, are, are essentially the same Greek root word. Modern translations usually say something like walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. <clears throat> what I was surprised by is the word worthy in verse 1. What does it mean to walk worthy or have a manner of life that's worthy? Well, it's this Greek word axios, which it's the word for counterbalancing. So picture it like this. There is a set of scales, and what's on one side balances out with what's on the other side so that they correspond with each other. Now, Paul is absolutely not saying, right, you can do enough good things that you make yourself worthy of Jesus. We can't. But what he is saying is, I'm pleading with you to live in a way that when people look at your life, what you do corresponds with what God has done for you. To every believer placed in the Lord's church, we are to conform ourselves to Christ because our manner of life corresponds in the world's eyes with what Jesus has done for us. Or said another way and perhaps a little bluntly, you cannot promote a high view of Christ while engaging in low life behavior. We are united by this common calling. He also says in verses 2 and 3, we are united through our common conduct. Thankfully, He's not just going to lay this burden on us without further explanation. How is it that we walk worthy of our calling? Well, he says in verses 2 and 3, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verses 2 and 3 outline four qualities of conduct that exemplify a Christian calling. The first is lowliness. The word there essentially means humility, although that concept was entirely foreign to, to Paul's first century readers. It is, it's hardly an acceptable idea for us today. 
So foreign is the idea of humility that the New Testament writers seem to have invented the word that means humility. The Greek word is tapenophrosune, because if you're going to invent a word, why not make it complicated? You know, it's basically taking other words and smashing them together. It means something like setting your thoughts lowly. The word doesn't show up in any Greek writing before the New Testament because neither the Greek nor the Roman culture would have ever thought to encourage humility as a kind of virtue. Much like our society today, Greek and Roman culture said you need to exalt yourself. You need to think more highly of yourself. You really need to improve your self-esteem. You know, it is virtually impossible to keep a room full of high-minded, arrogant people in unity. If that was easy to do, then coaches in professional sports wouldn't be making multi-million dollars a year. The Bible says to achieve unity, you have to embrace humility. Listen, pride is the enemy of unity. You put a bunch of proud people in the same room, they're either going to start to fight with each other or they're going to unite over some other common enemy that, well, we're all better than them and fight with that group of people. If that doesn't seem too on the nose for the world that we live in today. This must be part of our common conduct if we're to have church unity. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says to be clothed with humility because God resists the proud and exalts the humble. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others to be better than themselves. Now let's be clear about what biblical humility entails. There's a fellow named Stephen Cole. He has wisely written, quote, humility means being Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. The proud person trusts in himself. The humble Christian trusts in Jesus. And then by trusting in Jesus, we are called to do wonderful works in the name of Jesus. So for example, the Apostle Paul is about to write in this chapter about individual gifts that the Lord Jesus has given to church members. And humility does not require us to deny our giftedness, but it does require that each church member recognizes those gifts come from the Lord and they're to be used for the Lord to the glory of the Lord. After all, Paul says, what do you have that you haven't been given? And if it's been given to you, why do you brag like it was yours? Lowliness is the first quality of conduct that should exemplify church members. The second in verse 2 is meekness. Meekness does not mean weakness. Jesus is meek and he is far from weak. In fact, outside scripture, when you look at the way this word for meekness is used, the, the Greeks use this word meekness to describe a well-trained war horse. Now, are they describing something that was weak and powerless? No, they're describing something that is strong but under control. The word easily could be translated as gentleness. 
Again, Jesus is our perfect example, right? What did he say? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, think of what Jesus says when he's saying, take my yoke upon you, right? A yoke is, if you have a couple of oxen that are supposed to pull together, a yoke is that piece that attaches them, that harness that puts them together. Would it be appealing at all to be hitched pulling with a weak person? You know, get yoked to me because I'm weak and I can't do much. But what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. I am strength under control and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's he's not weak, he's meek, he's strong but gentle. And yoked to him, you find that you move in his strength. And life is easier because what he says, my yoke is easy and my burden's light. You find yourself with Jesus doing the pulling. He's our perfect example. Can, Can we have that attitude in our lives? What would it look like if every person in our church exhibited meekness? strength under control, strong but gentle. And you understand strength is not talking about necessarily muscle power, although there are times where muscle power is exactly what we need and we have to have that under control. But you know that yourself and every other person in here, there are facets of your life that you can look at and say, that person is strong in that way. Are are we meek in that way? Do we have that strength and we're using it under control and we're using it for the glory of God? The third quality of conduct he lists is long-suffering. The idea here of the word long-suffering is literally just patient. It almost makes you want to break out in a chant, right? What do we want? Patience. When do we want it? Right now. This word specifically means to be patient in the face of frustrations and offenses. If you you translate this very literally by its root words, the idea is you are long-tempered. That is not that you have a temper and you stay mad for a long time. It's that it takes a long time for your temper to show. That is, church members are not to have a short fuse. After all, we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and love is kind. This is exactly where Paul goes with the fourth quality of conduct in verse 2. Forbearing one another in love. The word forbearing means, means to endure. Listen, there sometimes it is an undeniable fact that your brother or sister in Christ presents themselves not as an encouragement to embrace, but as a challenge to endure. And if you look around this room and you don't recognize that kind of person, everybody else is recognizing that kind of person when they look at you. Sometimes it is certainly each of us that that requires others to endure. You have shortcomings and 
peculiarities, when, when your strength is not under control, when you fail to be long-suffering, moments where it is your pride that is challenging unity. We aren't simply called to endure or tolerate one another. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. We're called to do it in a specific way for a specific cause. Forbearing one another in love. Love seeks the best for its object. That means do not fool yourself into thinking that your indifference is forbearance. It's not. Some people will say, oh, I can put up with a lot just because I don't care. That's not forbearance. Forbearing in love. Your indifference is not forbearance. Don't imagine that putting up some outer facade of kindness is forbearing if you are fuming with rage on the inside. It's not. Forbearing one another in love is withholding anger, swallowing pride, esteeming the other person to be better than ourselves, keeping our strength under control, being patient and long-suffering because they are imperfect and we love them. You're united with them in a common calling. So for the sake of Christ, for the sake of that brother, and because you don't count yourself so special that you are above being mistreated sometimes, we endure one another in love. We're united by this common calling and we're united through this common conduct. Y'all, this is work. It calls for effort and we are at best a work in progress. And so Paul says in verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Endeavoring. Unity is an endeavor. The word endeavor means to be zealous, to be eager, to, to be in a hurry, to make haste towards something. Church unity is no passive matter. It is the unity of the Spirit, that is that the Holy Spirit of God himself is the active force that creates the unity within an assembly. But Paul says, you are to endeavor to keep it. You have to work at it. Let me give you this phrase as it's translated in a few other translations, each of them good. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. If your attitude towards church unity is, well, I sure hope that happens someday, I assure you, it won't. It is no passive matter. It will not just happen. Do you know what will just happen? you are going to get offended. You are going to be disappointed by some brother or sister in Christ. You are going to be the disappointment of someone else. Somebody's going to get on your nerves, maybe even the last one you've got. You're going to disagree over the, the color of tiles the, in front of the front door, the schedule of services, the, the new song we're going to sing, the kind of coffee that's available, whether or not there should be coffee available. 
There is almost a never-ending series of events which have the potential for disunity. And sometimes you don't even see it coming. And yet in everything, we have this common calling and this common conduct so that we are diligently attempting to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul says, I love the end of verse 3. In the bond of peace, bond, bound by it, constrained by peace, tied up by peace, we are bound to peace with each other. And the reason is that because we're, we're bound by peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us peace with God, and thereby we have peace with one another. As I said, we're going to leave verses 4 through 6, our common confession, Lord willing, for next time. But just glance at it for a moment. If you want to see, do you have any better reason to be at peace, to truly have unity with your fellow church members, then what better cause could you have than our common confession in which there is one body, there's one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are called to one body, called by one spirit with one hope of our calling. We share the same Lord Jesus. We have the same faith, the same baptism. It's the same Father God who is for us all and above us all and working through us all and residing in us all. What we have in common is far greater than anything that would make us different. And if we will have unity in our assembly, it's only going to happen when each of us individually tunes our lives to the perfect standard of Jesus. We conform to him. Contrary to what the world would say, it's not going to happen through, uh, you know, higher self-esteem and embracing rugged individualism and pride. Pride is the enemy of unity. But humility and gentleness and patience and being bound, being constrained by peace through love, that's what will make our church united for the glory of Jesus Christ.